Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, I'm once again joined by my faithful co-host, Dale Stenberg, and we are delighted to be joined by Mr. Andrew Lazo, an internationally renowned expert on the thought and life of C.S. Lewis, uh, particularly an expert on C.S. Lewis' uh, famous and late-in-life book, Till We Have Faces, A Myth Retold. Um, and instead of introducing uh, Andrew more than that, I'm going to actually allow Andrew to tell our audience a little bit about what he does, what his work is. Uh, and Andrew, actually, if you would, tell us the, you know, what, what got you into this particular book, Till We Have Faces. How did you sort of encounter it? And what are you doing with the book? Uh, as I get, if people read your website, I think they'll find uh, you're doing quite a bit with it. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's much to be done. And thanks so much. It's a joy to be amongst you all. And, uh, and Dale and I Our have pleasure. had some great conversations. And, uh, and I look forward to this to, be, to being the, the beginning of a, of a long relationship. Mm. Um, yeah, Till We Have Faces uh, was one of those books. Um, so let me just give you a quick little background of my history of Lewis. Growing up, I was raised agnostic, raised nothing, but I read the Chronicles and loved them. And so mm. in some ways, they gave birth to my imagination. Uh, then through the witness of friends in public high school uh, as a freshman, uh, I became a Christian. And then when I reread the Chronicles of Narnia, I felt very smart that I actually discovered that there's Christianity in the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> Shall I pause for a moment of surprise? <laughs> I didn't then know that my future wife uh, would write a book um, called The Family Guide to Narnia. Kristen Ditchfield uh, is her pen name. And she wrote a book tracking down the scriptures in every chapter of the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, moved to Nashville, was actually a member of Christ Community Church, a PCA church there. Uh, wanted desperately to get involved in the Christian music industry, grew my hair out, and uh, and met <laughs> Phil Keggy at a, at church one Sunday. Ah. And, oh my gosh, he had been a, an idol of mine for years, um, and so uh, got to got to chatting with him, and um, he invited me over to his house, and we pretty soon went walking in the forest and in the woods uh, there in Nashville. Um, right around the time the Beyond Nature album was recorded. So I got to be a, a piece of that a little bit and see that made. Uh, it was at a time where I was going through kind of this intellectual crisis of faith where I thought if there's not more depth to Christianity than I'm seeing, man, I'm sleeping in on Sundays and I'm out of here. Right. And it was around this time that Phil lent me Letters to an American Lady uh, by Lewis, this long correspondence between Lewis and a, and a woman here in the States. And then shortly thereafter, I stumbled across Surprised by Joy and read Lewis's spiritual autobiography and found in that book somebody who had thought through his atheism better than I'd ever thought through my faith. Mm. And then Mere Christianity, right? And, and the essays, and you've probably had this experience and your listeners yep. too. You read through and, you know, you're reading through an essay or Mere Christianity or Problem of Pain, Miracles, any of those. And Lewis, six pages in, says, and fourthly, Right. Fourthly, where were one, two, and three? And you go back and they're exactly where they need to be to develop thought. But I just hadn't been reading or thinking well enough for that. Yeah. So it's not really an exaggeration to say that Lewis taught me how to think. Yeah. Um, and he yeah, I think that's, my, yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important to recover today too, because yeah. um, with social media and the sort of infinite scroll on our phone, our attention yeah. is sort of pulled uh, into various thoughts, you know, 
one right after another, after another. And it does, I feel it in my own mental sort of uh, capacities. It's difficult to focus. And when I read Lewis and you read his prose and the way that he develops long arguments, it's like exercising. It's like, you know, getting in the gym after 10 years of not being in there and lifting barbells or something. You just feel the pain in your muscle and you're like, okay, this is good for me and I need to develop this discipline more. So I resonate with what you say there. So yes, amen, brother. Well, and he just, he develops that capacity to think and to think clearly about things. And I like to say that when I was a child, he sparked my imaginative life. But when I became a man, he saved my intellectual life. Mm. And I owe as much to him as I could owe anybody. Um, And so I started just really reading Lewis uh, all the time. I wanted to get to the bottom of him. And Phil was going through a real uh, Lewis uh, and Tolkien phase. Um, And so we were trading books and talking about this stuff all the time. And then uh, several years later, I started, um, I moved to Houston, Texas. I was doing grad work at Rice University and working on Lewis and had begun speaking for the C.S. Lewis Foundation um, in, uh, in, in, uh, in L.A. They have these wonderful events around the country and in Oxford and Cambridge. They just had an event um, with Malcolm Geith, Andrew Peterson, mm-hmm. Karen Swallow Pryor, and Terry Glassby just a couple of days ago. Right. And so I was flying out to Williams College to do this kind of two-week conference, and they had asked me to speak about, um, to do a, a college course for credit on any two works by Lewis. And instantly, without even really realizing why, I said, I want to talk about the four loves until we have faces, because I just felt like those two books were connected. And as I'm on the plane, and academics will know this, you write the, you write the blurb for the paper, and then you write the paper on the plane. Before, right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. Um, or the hotel room the night before, the morning of. I'm not giving away any trade secrets, I hope. Um, <laughs> but I'm reading Orwall, and I'm realizing, because the first time I read this book, um, I had the same reaction that a lot of us have. And you guys probably, maybe you can relate. Um, I read it because I'd run out of Lewis and I'm like, okay, here's this novel. And so you read it and you have what I call the till we have faces whiplash. You're like, what the heck just went over my head. <laughs> right. No, I just didn't. It was seemed so foreign and so different. But as I kept pulling at it, um, I thought that the four loves were, were really related. And then I'm on the plane and I'm rereading till we have faces and I'm about 90 pages in. And I realized that Orwall the main character is lying to us. I mean, like mm. flat out lying to us, maybe mm. self-deceived, but also deliberately deceiving. And then there's confirmation at the beginning of book two, where she says, I have to rewrite my book to leave it. Thus would be to die perjured. Yeah. So she admits that she's been committing perjury for the whole of book one. And I'm like, crap. In order to get good spirituality from Orwell, you have to flip it right side up, which is just like screw tape. Hmm. And I realized that Orwell was screw tape. Yeah. Like, okay, four loves are here. Screw tape is here. There are certainly definite echoes to the great divorce here. And what I've discovered since 2005, when I was flying out on that plane, I've discovered that, um, that uh, 2006, that every single book by Lewis, even books he hadn't read yet or written yet are in Till We Have Faces. 
Hmm. And that's hmm. part of what sub substantiates his claim. He calls it far and away my best book or much my best book. Now he's either lying, exaggerating, not wrong, <laughs> or maybe he's telling the truth and he is right about <laughs> what he's saying. And what I found was everything is in there, especially the four loves. Your um, the thing you said about uh, Orwell being screw tape is that's such, such an insightful thought. And I think it's confirmed if I'm recalling in the end when uh, Orwell and, uh, and the Fox are looking at this vision and they basically realize at some point that we were the tempters of yeah. Psyche, that Psyche and, they, and they actually name themselves as here we thought we were doing good, here we thought we loved this person, but in fact we were, we were a source of stumbling uh, yeah. uh, to this person even though Psyche you know, ultimately completes, uh, completes her trial. Um, that's that's fantastic. So maybe one thing we can do is just you know get into some of the themes. Maybe uh, an interesting uh, way to 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 start would be actually just with the title, perhaps. Like what you know, till we have faces. It's it's obviously uh, in part two. I think that this this sort of it's clarified what exactly is going on with you know the phrase till we have faces. Um, if I recall, it's sort of the 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 uh, how can how can we expect to. Uh, how can we expect to see the gods? Or how, how can, can the gods meet us face to face right. until we have faces? Yes. Right. Yes. What's what's uh, so maybe maybe for people who are interested in getting into this book, what what what's going on perhaps with the metaphor there, or would it be cheating? Maybe it's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> hey, spoiler alerts everywhere. Yeah, yeah right? that's right. <laughs> but this coming Saturday, I will actually complete my kind of COVID project until we have faces. I was so inspired by Billy Collins, the poet, Paul Simon, you know. Um, uh, all of these Yo-Yo Ma, all these artists and musicians um, doing their stuff on uh, online during COVID. And so I thought, well, I don't have many tools in my bag, but I can talk about Till We Have Faces. So every Saturday on my Facebook page, um, I've been reading a chapter of Till We Have Faces and explaining it. And we're getting to the end. We're at the last chapter this coming Saturday. Um, so there's there's some of that, that that's going on there. Um What's happening with this book, um, I think what you have is, is Lewis is really kind of trying to tell everything that he's told before. And as I said, he's quoting himself everywhere. So it's all in Plato, right? Isn't that what Professor right. Kirk says? Right. And Plato says that the real world is the heavenly world and that the world down here is the shadow lands. Lewis gets his phrase from, from Plato. What you have are, are shadows um, uh, of, the, of the real or true things that are in heaven, copies. Um, and so the, the philosophical technical term is incidents and accidents. So the real stuff is in heaven. And so you've got the real horse and then you have copies of the real horse um, here. Orwell throughout the, the, the book is complaining that the gods won't meet her face to face and there's no intermediary between us. No one will, you know, no one to make the case to. And what she begins to find out is that the reason why the gods won't meet us face to face, the reason why Moses hides in the cleft of the rock, right, mm -hmm. is because we cannot see his face and live is what the scripture says. Mm -hmm. And so she says the gods can't meet us face to face, not because of a lack in the gods, but because of a lack in us. The yeah. gods can't meet us face to face till we have faces. Now, listen to this. I'm sorry. 
I'm running away with it, I know, but you got to hear this. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Here's the last page of the uh, uh, of last couple of pages of The Four Loves. So here's my beautiful British first edition. Of oh, that. cool. Um, is it easy to love God? One uh, asks an old author. It is easy, he replies, to those who do it. And with this, where a better book would begin, I, mine must end. I dare not proceed. God knows, not I, whether I have ever tasted this love. Perhaps I have only imagined the tasting. And if I have only imagined it, um, is it a further, it is a further delusion that even the imagining has at some moments made all other objects of desire. Yes, even peace, even to have no more fears, look like broken toys and faded flowers? Hmm. Perhaps, check this out, oh, so good. Perhaps for many of us, all experience merely defines, so to speak, the shape of that gap where our love hmm. of God ought to be. It is not enough. It is something. If we cannot practice the presence of God, it is something to practice the absence of God, to mm. become increasingly aware of our unawareness till we feel like men who should stand beside a great cataract and hear no noise, or like a man in a story who looks in a mirror and finds no face there. Mm. Or a man who in a dream stretches out his hand to visible objects and gets no sensation of touch. To know that one is dreaming is to be no longer fully asleep. Echoes of that, the Christian conversion in the sidecar in yeah. by Joy. Right. But for news of the fully waking world, you must go to my betters. And so the idea of being faceless is that we don't have enough face, enough countenance, enough vocabulary, enough soul to meet God face to face. And this is in a pre-incarnate society. One of the scholars says it's about three or 400 BC. So this is a pre-Messiah, pre-Christ society. So all you have are these pagan echoes. You're and saying so, uh, uh, pre, pre the, the context of till we have faces is. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe what would be, because um, Joe is, you're talking about, we're talking about the title, Till We Have Faces, yeah. and it's a story retold. A myth so, retold. A myth retold. I'm sorry. Yeah. You're right. Well, maybe we could do this, and this will sort of like branch out. Um, give us the most concise uh, explanation of what the book is about. Sure. Um, starting with the myth and then um, let's trace out some themes from there that Lewis sort of picks up on and runs with And maybe we could say places that he diverges from the myth that he's trying to get at sure. um, or themes that are, explicated in different works that he has uh, because I think if there's, I think most of the people that will watch this program will be somewhat familiar with till we have faces. You probably mm -hmm. agree with that, right, Joe? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but for those that are, that are, that have no idea what we're talking about, <laughs> maybe it'd be good to just say, here's what the book is. Here's what it's based off of. And this is what Lewis is trying to do with it. And then we'll, and then we'll talk. Absolutely. Well, I'll see if I can do it in a breath or two. Um, sure. uh, tall, and, tall order, I understand, brother. <laughs> yeah, for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and 
part of in, in, in my work on Till We Have Faces, I've been trying for years to kind of develop the unified field theory of Lewis, which is a mad wish, admittedly. Yeah. But I think I got it. And I think that the, the so the, my motto of Lewis, my kind of summation of Lewis is clarity and charity, right? Claritas et caritas. So what he's going after is caritas, love right? Charity in the agape, the, the first Corinthians 13 sense. And he wants us to see things clearly. So that's why all of his books of medieval literature, whatever, he wants us to see things clearly. That's why Lucy sees everything on the Dawn Treader and she's the lucid one. So mm. Lewis is always pushing us to see things clearly. And the thing he most wants us to see clearly is the love of God. And so that's kind of what's going on. The, the way that he does it is through words, especially through story. So this myth retold is an old Cupid and Psyche myth. So the, the story is told of a beautiful princess who is so beautiful that she begins to be compared with Aphrodite. And you don't compare yourselves with the gods. Ask right. Arachne, you know, who became right. a spider. What mm -hmm. happens when you compare yourself to Athena? Um, so Aphrodite gets so jealous that she sends her son, Eros. So this is Venus and Cupid, Aphrodite and Eros, um, the, the god of love whose mother, whose parent is the god of love, sends Eros to kill her and he falls in love with her because she is so beautiful and builds this palace for her and keeps her secret from his mom. Her two sisters come, see the palace, and they're so jealous that they want to spoil it for her. So they send her in uh, one night to look on her husband, Eros, as he's sleeping. Eros has forbidden Psyche. It's the Greek word actually means soul. So he forbid, forbids Psyche from looking at his, at his face. Um, and that's probably because he's so beautiful as a god. The sisters want to spoil it. So they're like, oh, maybe he's just ugly. Maybe he's fooling you. Why don't you go in with your lamp at night after he's fallen asleep and look at him? And so she goes in, she looks at him. She, she's leaning into him because he's so beautiful. And a drop of oil from her lamp falls on his shoulder and he wakes up and he condemns her to these three impossible tasks and sends her out wandering through the world. Somehow she manages to do these impossible tasks, is reconciled to Eros, and so she becomes a goddess. So that's the myth. Lewis said the central alteration that, almost, that thrust itself on my imagination almost from the first reading is that the sisters could not see the palace. Right, right. right. And so that thing about vision and self-deception yep, is yep. at the heart of Till We Have Faces. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. was, I think, three breaths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's very a, good, though. That's a yeah, that's, that's a fantastic summary. You mentioned uh, earlier the theme of, uh, in fact, Lewis mentions it at the end of Four Loves. You just read the end of Four Loves, and I just love how he ends with, uh, "For that, you're going to have to go to my betters." Uh, the uh, that sense of metaphysical, uh, you know, hey, hey, fellas, don't look at me. <laughs> uh, I, I just love, uh, uh, you know, people who write in this way. He does that all the time. I think he's posing sometimes. <laughs> yeah, he is though. Though it, it, it's interesting, you know, that the other author who uh, who is living, who who comes close to Lewis in his kind of synthetic insight to me is uh, Stephen R.L. Clark, who's a British philosopher. 
Um, uh, and he does this all the time as well. And it strikes me that I, I want, it, it does look like posing. And yet you wonder if, uh, you wonder if, if somebody is that close to the thing itself, uh, you know, do they, do they by, by virtue of that experience, their own ignorance in a genuinely profound way, uh, right. you know, and you've gone, you know, you've gone that deep into the layer of the self and reality. Um, but the theme of absence, you know, in my own work, uh, I think I've mentioned to you divine presence and absence is sort of like the theme that I, I have sort of explored in my own academic work. Um, and it's all over this, this book. It's in, in one of the particular uh, metaphors that's interesting is darkness. Mm -hmm. uh, why does, you know, when, when uh, the sisters are sort of saying, on the one hand, there's or Orwell's, uh, 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 she, she uh, has to, um, uh, she, there's an ambiguity in her vision of the gods mm -hmm. and of the palace. And so there's this sort of like, is it there? Is it not there? And she sort of makes excuses for why that, you know, that wasn't good enough proof, you know, that sort of thing. But even for Psyche, when she's with the god, there's this sense of like, um, you know, there's this beautiful thing, but I have to approach it in darkness. I actually don't see the thing itself. And there's even a line, I think, somewhere in the book where, uh, I believe it, it, it's Orwell who says something like, um, uh, why does the holy always have to be in darkness? Yeah, why uh, are so, holy places dark places? Yeah, yeah right. why are holy places dark places? Yes, that's right. Um, and, and that's such an interesting metaphor. And I wonder if part of it is, um, and maybe you can, you can help us out here. Um, you mentioned that, yeah, this is sort of written, you're supposed to be thinking this is kind of three, 400 BC, and the gods are sort of shrouded to some extent in mystery. Uh, and I've been reading through Acts recently, and it's interesting to me when Paul is talking hmm. about, uh, when Paul's on Mars Hill. Right. Uh, I, was just, I was just reading yeah. this this morning. Uh, Paul says, uh, Paul, Paul says uh, I'm trying to think of the, the uh, ah, he talks about the nation seeking God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Mm -hmm. And so there's this interesting metaphor Paul uses that they're sort of out there just kind of feeling their way around things and maybe hopefully grabbing onto something substantive every now and again, and they're seeking of God. Mm -hmm. Is that perhaps part of what's, I guess is the question, is that something of what's going on perhaps in Lewis's darkness metaphor that the gods are, are, are kind of in a pagan society, they're kind of shrouded and that, and that with the incarnation, it's the light. You know, it's like the face, sure. the face of God all of a sure. sudden is illuminated here in the sure. crack. And Paul in Corinthians, we all now stand with unveiled faces, right? So there's the veiling and there's the darkness, and that's a huge piece of it. I think, though, that um, holy places are dark places in some ways because we can't see, right? So I think Bono was right. He said, no one is blinder than he who will not see. And so yeah. light and darkness is there, but I think that Lewis would probably orient himself a little bit more towards um, blindness and sight, especially mm. willing blindness, because it's very dark if I'm closing my eyes, right? Yeah. And Orwell very deliberately closes her eyes yes. um, to all of the things that she sees, right? There's that great moment, and I think it's the center of the book, where she actually sees the palace. Yeah. Right? Mm. What did you make of that, Dale? Yeah, well, um, one thing that I've, so I've, all three of us actually have a shared friend uh, who doesn't like this book uh, because he <laughs> <Yeah>. thinks, he, <laughs> right. Shane, can you hear us? Right. <laughs> um, and one thing that I, you know, one of the things that I was in discussion with uh, my buddy about was, listen, this is written in first person mm -hmm. and Orwall is, 
um, even towards the end of the first book, going into the second book, she starts to admit that what she's picking up on is her own self-love. Mm-hmm. The, the, the entire book was her not being able to see because she was blinded by her own love of self. Yeah. She cannot turn out towards anyone other than herself, even with her love of psyche, which was her baby sister, mm-hmm. it was for selfish reasons. Mm-hmm. And when the gods took her, when, mm-hmm. when, they, when her, when her, her, when she refers to psyche as her daughter, um, when the gods uh, took her, she says, you took her from me. Don't she you was understand? Mine. She was mine, right? And uh, don't was, you 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 started it? Don't you gods know what mine means? Precisely, right? precisely. Mm. And this is the heart of the matter. I think that this is exactly what Lewis is doing. Is Lewis is saying that um, fundamentally the the problem with humanity is that they don't turn away from themselves. Sure. Sure. They love themselves more than anything, and then they instrumentalize all of the relationships in their life to feed their own self-love. I think you've made this point before where um, in the first book, I think it's the first chapter. The first word. Yeah, the first sentence, there's all four of the loves there. Oh, the second sentence. The second sentence. But the first sentence keys in right what you're doing. Now, keep in mind that that book three, chapter eight of Mere Christianity, the great sin is pride. Yeah. And in terms of my theological perspective, the opposite of pride is not humility but love Mm. and the opposite of love is not hatred but pride so lewis says in the lectures that became the four loves recorded in 1958 the actual this actual phrase doesn't make it into the four loves you can get a recording of it in his own voice i've got them on my ebay page sure um he says love is when we go out of ourselves to meet the other so the turning from self and the movement towards other is at least the very beginning of love. That's why he says um, a prostitute may be nearer to the spirit of Christ than, the, than a cold-hearted prig. Yes. Right. But of course, it is better to be neither. <laughs> right, right, right. But this, <laughs> this turning from self and the very first word of the words of book one are, I am old now and have not much to fear from the anger of gods. And you're right. I have no husband Philia or Eros, romantic love. I have no friend, Philia, friendship love, nor hardly even, I'm sorry, no husband, no, no child. Um, Storge. Storge, family, family affection. Right. Nor hardly even a friend, Philia, through whom the gods can hurt me. That's the opposite of agape. But the key thing, and I just discovered this actually while teaching it last Saturday, the key thing is I. Yeah. And the opposite to, of God is I. Yeah. Right. And I am, she's appropriating the name, right? The holy name of God right yes. there. Mm. And if you look at the last two words of book one, you see her final understanding kind of dawning on her. I am no answer. Yeah. And the whole of book one is leading her to the very first step of the four spiritual laws, you know, or the first step of, you know, of the 12 steps. There's nothing good in me. Right. If anybody knows about depravity, right. it's horrible. Right. right. But she's so focused on I and mine, mine, mine. Right. She's echoing Pam from the Great Divorce. Oh, interesting. Right. The mother, mine, mine. Yeah. Right? yeah. And she would drag her son back to hell with her. Yeah. Tell me she knows anything about love. 
Yeah. Right. And she says, don't you gods know what mine means? The gods are the only ones who know how to possess us while not domineering us. Right. Christ is the only one who can, who can own us and set us free to be ourselves. And Orwell yeah. is just turned on the inside. Now, let me connect this really quickly, if, if I can, sure. to, um, to the moment of vision. Remember that screw tape says the bodily position matters in prayer. The body needs to pray too, Lewis says. There's this moment, the central alteration, where Orwell actually, she doesn't see the palace at the beginning. If you look a few pages earlier, she has refused an invitation to joy and mm. to get over herself and refuse the voice of God. And that God is Eros, right? So she refuses his voice saying, why should your heart not dance? She tells herself no. And then meets Psyche, can't see the palace. And then that night she gets up at midnight and she goes down to the stream. And all of a sudden she catches a picture of the palace, a vision of the palace. She sees it, but she only sees it guys when she gets down on her knees to drink at the river. Yeah. Even her body assuming the posi physical position of humility grants her vision. Right. And that selfishness, selflessness lets her see the palace. I'll argue that Lucy can see, and Lucy always sees Aslan first. She always sees everything first. And she sees because she loves. Mm. Love, the abandonment of self, allows me or affords me vision. Yeah. Yeah. And her kneeling, even her physical position, grants her the privilege of seeing. And she knows it's a true seeing, and she lies to herself about it for the rest of the book. And so for me, that's kind of where they start to tie all together. Yeah. That's really interesting. What a, 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 an interesting theme that's also throughout the book that I, I found really fascinating is how much uh, it focuses on envy. Um, yeah. Because it's not just it's not just the envy of of uh, of uh, of uh, of Orwall who who is and, and there's an ambiguity there is she envious in in the myth there's uh, something of sort of envy of in the myth it's a little bit more like there's an envy of psyche that's right. going on whereas in the book it's more like there's an envy of the gods because the gods the gods actually uh, yeah. have psyche instead of her having psyche, which is a pretty profound kind of interesting, interesting statement. But there's also a third envy in the book, and that is the envy of the god, not the envy, excuse me, I don't want to use that word, the jealousy. Jealousy, jealousy yep. right. Uh, yep. The jealousy of the gods. And, and you have the fox kind of constantly saying the divine nature isn't like that, right? You know, mm -hmm. the divine nature doesn't have jealousy. It doesn't right. have this kind of thing. Right. Uh, and yet, of course, there is something, and this is a very scriptural theme in Lewis, and he just does such a brilliant job of sort of saying, you know, the the gods, the reality that are beyond the shadow lands is something a little bit like the fox's weird stuff, and it's something a little bit like this blood and seed paganism, but it's mm -hmm. neither of them completely. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that is included then is that the gods do actually have some pure kind of jealousy, uh, but it's not a, it's not a, um, uh, but it's not Fox's jealousy. It's a more biblical, or uh, you, can, you can ascribe the term sure. to them. And I wonder if you, sure. how do you thread all that together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a great question. And you're, you're such an insightful reader of the book. Both of you have really uh, considered it well and grappled with it well. And I think the grappling with this book is worth everything. Hmm. This may be one of the best books ever written. Um, I think it's a masterpiece and I think it's an undiscovered masterpiece and I hope to do some work to, to bring it back to light. Jealousy is wanting something that I don't have. 
and wanting something somebody else has. And she is appalled at the, at the thought that she is jealous of Psyche. I'm jealous of Psyche. Right. But you're exactly right. She's not jealous of Psyche. She's jealous of the gods for taking Psyche. Now let's drink that drink all the way down. Psyche is so beautiful that a god loves her, builds a palace for her, and the god of love is loving her. And Orwell can't do anything except drive a dagger in her arm to try and spoil that. And she's like, how can I, how could I allow her to have any happiness that I didn't give to her? Right? right? Mm. That's not love. That's selfishness. And that jealousy is this inward turning self-centeredness it's just in another form. She's jealous, uh, not jealous of Psyche. She's jealous of the gods for taking my love away. Mm. She was surrounded by love. And that's the thing. When Orwell talks about how bad she has it, she's usually lying, right? Yeah. She was yeah. Sur- the fox loved her. Bardia loved her. Pooby loved her. Her people loved her, right? Even Redival and she reconciled. She had this friendship with Bardia. I mean, she's surrounded by love. It might not have been the romantic love that she wants, but whatever. And so she can't see past to herself because it's this all-consuming thing. And in The Four Loves, Lewis quotes Denis de Rougemont, who says, love ceases to be a demon when he ceases to be a god. Yeah. And he corrects the author who said, when the real god go- comes, the half-gods go. And Lewis insightfully says, when the real god, go- real god comes, the half-gods can take their proper place. That's mm-hmm. right. The natural loves can be naturally ordered. And what you see in Orwell is this kind of thwarting of and overemphasis on how she isn't loved by all the natural loves. And then I'll tell you a secret in a minute. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you to sort of, because we live in interesting times, Um, especially 2020 has been uh, crazy. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's been a crazy year. Uh, right, and it seems like you know every month it's like okay. Uh, but wh- by the way, that's why people are putting up their Christmas early. Right, <laughs> I think they just want twenty twenty to be over. Right. Let's hope they're thinking about the Christ child. But yes, indeed, indeed. Right. I wonder though, because what we're talking about here and the and the things. This is what is so wonderful about Lewis. He's so ahead of his time, and he's evergreen. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, this, you could read him over and over and over again and walk away with something that's profound. Um, I, I was listening to um, Till We Have Faces. I finished it on my road trip today for the second time. Mm-hmm. And I'll probably end up reading this book for, until I'm dead. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I notice is that the culture in America anyway, and I guess you could extend this to Western culture in general, is dominated by selfishness. It's dominated by um, satisfying your own desires for your own ends. Uh, There is nothing that's greater than your own expressive um, uh, characteristics in the city and having everyone accept those things uh, without any criticism whatsoever. And if they do, that's not loving you. And you're entitled to everyone's affirmations. Um, and if there, if you don't get the affirmations, then that's a sign of, you know, um, hate almost. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what, what do you think if Lewis was kicking around the streets of, uh, San Francisco mm-hmm. and, uh, he was interacting with, uh, you know, 
professors in the philosophy department mm-hmm. at uh, universities and the, in the cities of America. What do you think he, how do you think he would drive home what he's trying to um, tell us until we have faces to those people? How do you think that he would go about getting at a modern mind? And in some ways he is interacting with a modern mind for his age. Yeah. Uh, but how do you think he would deal with what we're dealing with in terms of selfishness and self-love? And, and we all know Lewis isn't, a, he's not a hammer. He's very nuanced and he's not like a lot of the current apologists where it's just like, Rah! you know, you must do that, right? I mean, that, that would not be Lewis. In- including yeah. a lot of the people that, you know, one of the ironies is a lot of the people that sort of appropriate Lewis mm-hmm. lack, uh, lack his ethos and his, his rhetorical style. Mm-hmm. Every, every time somebody writes like a, a, a fake screw tape letter, uh, you know, you people write these, you know, sort of post screw tape letters. They're terrible. And they're right. always usually like screw tape making fun of somebody that they don't like or something like that. You know, it's right. just not Lewis. You, right. know? <laughs> you know, I think that a lot of it has to do. I was blessed one night. Uh, the C.S. Lewis Foundation, um, who I mentioned before, owns the kilns, owns Lewis's home. And every time I visited England, they've uh, graciously invited me to stay. I even got to cook a curry uh, for the neighborhood oh, nice. once. Yeah. Um, but I spent the night in Lewis's bedroom once, and he chose the smallest bedroom in the house. And there's a piece of furniture in there that I think single-handedly explains what makes Lewis not only evergreen, but such a, a such a. Uh, a such an author that that really kind of speaks to us continually. It's his mirror. Lewis looked carefully at the wickedness of his own heart. Yes. He was, I think, relatively introverted. He spent lots of time, lots of time walking, but I think that he looked unflinchingly at his own fallenness, his own brokenness, his own human condition. Um, Walter Hooper rightly calls Lewis the most thoroughly converted man that he'd ever met. But I think that conversion comes from knowing what kind of, what kind of guy he was. Yeah. Knowing how, there's this wonderful story where he comes back from a walk or walking home or whatever, and walks into the kilns and sees his brother Warren Lewis and says to Warney, um, you know, I saw this farmer by the side of his field and he was lying down and he's like, you know what? He was probably injured or something. And he jumps up and he says, I have committed a sin against charity. Mm. And he dashes out and brings the guy in and revives him and helps him out. Mm. This is the towering professor of English literature. Who answers one seeker, you know, he writes him right back and he says, use me any way you please. That was Sheldon Van Auken, the author of Severe Mercy. There's this selflessness that Lewis has from looking in the mirror of how selfish he really is and looking how deep the redemption goes in the work of Christ and then trying to live that out. Yeah, you've you've never met a mere mortal. You know, yes. the, the, that, those lines. And, and there are no ordinary people. There are no, yeah, that's right. There are no ordinary people. And even in the, in the Four Loves, which is, of course, related to Till We Have Faces, there's this great moment where he describes a, a perversion uh, of love. And I don't remember which one it is, but he describes a fairly, grot- he, he sort of describes it in sort of grotesque detail mm-hmm. where the reader is sort of invited to think like, ah, that does sound like a horrible person. Uh, but then he basically says something to the effect of, 
live. And honestly, all of us do this. Right, <laughs> you know, right, he goes, right. right. He, you know, the yes. hook is actually like, you're not getting away from this. Actually, this woman I just described is partially you. Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, yes. and that's, yeah, that's absolutely, absolutely what he does. You know, a meta, a kind of meta question about Lewis, I suppose, that one of the things that, that fascinated me about Till We Have Faces, and it dovetails a little bit of what we were talking about earlier, um, is that Lewis, it seems to me one of the things that makes Lewis ahead of his time is that he's thinking about certain kind, you know, when you look at something like Narnia or the Space Trilogy, mm -hmm. or in this case, it's Till We Have Spaces, Till We Have Faces, he's... Uh, He's imagining, in a way, theological answers to questions that we, you know, that children ask. Something like, "What, mm -hmm. what, what would be the implications if we, you know, what would be the gospel implications, the implications for the whole Christian faith if we discovered life on other planets?" Mm -hmm. uh, what yeah. in Narnia? And I, I think it's interesting. Narnia. Just think what another world might mean. You might find anything, anything. Yeah, and Narnia, yeah. interestingly, is a. Narnia is particularly interesting to me because it's a it's a place where uh, you enter into this other world, but from a Christian world. So it's like you don't leave the world where Christ came and died and rose again, but you mm -hmm. ever enter another world where Christ came and died and rose again in a different form, as it were. Mm -hmm. And so he's almost imagining this old medieval debate of if we discovered other worlds, would there be sure. other redemptive histories and other incarnations? Sure. He ends up on you know, Mars and the guy starts teaching, the Martian starts teaching him his catechism. Right. Yes. And, <laughs> right, right. And Aslan says to Lucy, you've gotten to know me a little bit here so you can know me better there. And he's, mm -hmm. she says, are you there too, sir? Well, yes, but I have another name. And the whole reason I brought you into Narnia is so that you could learn my name there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that, until we have faces, the kind of interesting conundrum, I think he, I think part of what he's thinking through is, and again, it's partially through the fox and through the juxtaposition of the fox and the local temple religion, mm -hmm. which within a generation changes the, the new priest toward the end of the book has absorbed mm -hmm. a little bit of the fox's teachings. Sure. But you have this almost this, this sort of preparation for the gospel element going on. You know, mm -hmm. Rome prepares us for sure. the gospel in certain ways. But sure. in paganism, it's almost like he's thinking of, and very few people have actually, as far as I know, written on this, like, how did the myths actually change in their motifs kind of morph in such a way that when the gospel comes to this pagan land, already Greece has gotten there, but yeah. in 400 years, this Christ character is going to come and we're going to be talking about dying and rising gods and atonement and all that. And he's almost imagining, it seems to me in the book, a kind of what might God and what might God and his providence have been doing uh, to sort of prepare a people to sort of receive these motifs? And it's not just sort of like, oh, it's getting rid of the paganism. It is correcting it in a sort of way. And you already see paganism being corrected in the book itself, True. but also a sort of like, but it's also a fulfillment of. It's also, we see this is the story, the, you know, where it's not the gods, it's God, you know. Where would we find Aslan and Gloam? You know, where would Aslan show up in Gloam? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and remember that these are, yeah, Dale, what were you? No, no, nothing. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Um, so remember that, so, and I want to circle back to Dale's question about the philosopher, philosophy professor at Stanford. Um, and here's, I got a bone to pick with philosophers, no offense, um, but I'm going to roll up my sleeve. I think that a lot of my philosopher friends and theologian friends and apologetic friends love the Lewis of the 40s. 
right? They love the mere Christianity, the problem of pain, the miracles, all of the essays. But Lewis says, um, this is fantastic quote, Carl F.H. Henry, the American theologian, yeah. um, founder of, of, of Christianity Today, or editor of Christianity Today, writes to Lewis in 50, uh, 55, in September, right after he'd finished Till We Have Faces. And he said, and evidently asks him for more apologetic um, essays or articles. And Lewis writes him back. We don't have Henry's letter, but Lewis says, I, I'm, I'm heartily sorry that I cannot write your essays for you. Such talents as I have are given to catching the reader unawares through fiction and symbol. Not any less Christian, but I won't be writing any more direct theology. And so if he's not writing direct theology, but these books are theological, he's writing indirect theology. Yeah. And I think the philosophers love the philosophy stuff of Lewis. But remember, although that was his training at Oxford, his heart and soul was literature and myth and story, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think he graduates from that. He, he happily leaves the field. And he said in Problem of Pain, I kind of took up, took up a, a position where I thought that the, that the line was thinnest using this battle analogy. Um, but once he gets done with that apologetic stuff and the Socratic Club and all the rest, he's doing apologetics, but he's doing it creatively, fictively, mythically. And that's, I think, where Lewis is really thriving. That's part of why I think Michael Ward has rightly pointed out that the planet, that, that Narnia has a, a mythic construction behind it, that the mm -hmm. seven medieval planets match the seven chronicles of Narnia. And Michael Ward is a professor of cultural apologetics at HBU at Houston Baptist University. And they have a whole program designed on being apologetic, but by using elements of culture. Mm. And I think that's what he's really doing at in the fifties. He's writing fiction. He's catching the reader unawares through fiction and symbol. And that's, I think where he's speaking his native voice. And that's part of why the Narnias are what we come back to again and again. And I think till we have faces deserves at least that attention. Mm. Mm. I actually also owe a debt to Michael Ward because I read his marvelous book, Planet Narnia. Also, um, he did a kind of an everyman's version of it called the Narnia Code. Uh, yeah. Planet Narnia on Oxford, Narnia Code on, um, uh, is it Erdman's, I think? Um, but easily available. He discovered that Lewis had a secret structure to the, to the Seven Chronicles of Narnia. And so I went into Till We Have Faces going, okay, he's finished at Oxford. He's got a position at Cambridge, which gives him more money, more leisure, more fame, and less work. And wonder if there's a structure there. And that's part of how I discovered that the four loves are shot through Till We Have Faces. He writes that in 55, comes out in 56 in England, 57 in America. Joy Davidman gets, they get married. She gets sick. He marries her again. And then in 1960, because most people hadn't a clue as to what was going on until we have faces, in 1960, in 58, he gives these lectures about the four loves and turns them into a book in 1960. And so I think what he would say to the philosophy professors is not only read more literature, but read it theologically, but also go back and read what I was saying. Because yeah. you haven't seen clearly enough the most important thing in all the world, which is the love of God. And yeah. that's what he's getting to. And I think that we've all missed it. That's, you know, as I've, uh, Dale and I have talked about this, one of the reasons we want to do several podcasts on Lewis is because a lot of times you discover Lewis, the, 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 the kind of uh, development you just mentioned in Lewis is a 
development that happens for a lot of people, which is, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're, you're 16 or 18 or whatever it is, young 20s, you read your mere Christianity and you kind of learn your lunatic liar lord sort of things, mm-hmm. which are really, I think when you actually go and you, you read Lewis on his own terms and you kind of get outside of trying to like have a good apologetics, you know, mic drop or something like that, mm-hmm, right. you start to realize even in those very books, those are very often the least interesting sections. What what would have struck me and Lewis when I started to read him again in my mid thirties uh, was uh, most of what I'm finding just absolutely fascinating and life changing in this is stuff I've never even heard quoted before. It's you know it's mm-hmm, in the right. weeds. There's just piles and piles yeah. and piles of insights that that are just in the weeds. Uh, uh, you know, there's this quote I, I've mentioned in several articles now in um, in Miracles. He has this incredible section in Miracles where he talks about um, uh, how uh, uh, modern civil, ancient civilization used to be mediated sort of by the, by sort of uh, the, the sort of spiritual elites through tradition to the man on the ground, as it were. Mm-hmm. And Lewis sort of talks to this, gr- this modern audience all worried about secularism. Uh, and he, but, he, but he basically goes, he says, basically, we can't stay where we are. Uh, and we could go back to that. But the other, the other possibility is actually that the common man, uh, and this is what he's doing in his whole corpus, I think, the other possibility is that the common man might actually attain the heights of the sages. In former times, that hasn't happened. But now that might be our calling in this weird world that we're in. So he's thinking, He's appropriating this entire tradition, yeah. uh, but in a in a historical moment, in a peculiar historical moment that he realizes that he's inside of. In one way, it seems to me to read the entire corpus of Lewis is is sort of here's a guy trying to take all of this wisdom of an entire tradition yeah. and make it something that the common man can can internalize and appropriate. Sure. Which is why everyone reads him. Clarity. <laughs> Right? Yes, clarity, clarity and exactly. Charity. Right, and it right, makes you right. really, it makes you think like, what was wrong with everybody else? <laughs> why, <laughs> right. would, why was it never this clear? <laughs> yeah. There's a couple things you have to keep in mind with Lewis. And one is that he had a, I don't know, eidetic memory. He remembered everything that he read. Yeah. Like literally remembered everything that he read. And there are a couple of different accounts in the, in the memoirs about this. You could go to my bookshelf back there and pick out a book and open it. You, you, Lewis would play this game with, with his students who would come to his rooms. And he would have them pick a book, read a line at random, and Lewis would quote the rest of the page. Wow. The rest of the page. And he read everything. He read Greek and Latin and Anglo-Saxon. He read Italian. He read German. He read French. He read everything in the, written in English, just about. I was telling this story to an Oxford English professor. I'm sitting in the common room at Maudlin College, Lewis's old common room. And I'm telling him about Lewis's prodigious memory. And he jumps up and he says, that makes sense. And he takes me over to this day book that they've been keeping in the common room since like the 30s. And he flips back to 1946. And there in Lewis's handwriting, it says, Mr. Stevens bet Mr. Lewis that the word eros, written in Greek characters, does not appear in the Odyssey, and then in parentheses, a bottle of port, right? <laughs> and then underneath, in Lewis's hand, it says, paid by Mr. Stevens. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Lewis knew the Odyssey so well, and that's 24 chapters, right? Yeah. In Greek, that he knew that the word eros never occurred. 
this kind of systematic reading. And Owen Barfield rightly says about Lewis that what he thought about everything is secretly present in what he wrote about anything. Yeah. Yes. So you have this holistic mind at work and one that's gospel driven to tell about the love of God. And and, and interestingly, Oh, go ahead, Dale. You go, you go now. Well, I was going to say, and that's what's so, uh, that's what's so fascinating about a guy like Lewis, because you have on the one hand, like I know myself, Mm -hmm. if I had the talent and he had to know his own talent, if he was an introspective person, like like what we're talking about, if he was so aware of his, uh, not only of sin, but also what his gifts were and how he could exercise those gifts, it would be a constant battle to fight my own ego, mm-hmm. I, you know, to not crawl up in some ivory tower of academia and then look down at the peasants that were not as good as me in some form or another. But account after account after account that you read about Lewis is that he was the most charitable person that people ever knew. Mm-hmm. Um, he just loved people. And so I wonder if there's that going on. Like Lewis recognized that danger lurks on every side of my gift. Yeah. On the other side of my gift with the, being able to sort of be introspective and also to uh, get it, have real keen and uh, insights about the nature of reality and humanity on every side of that lies the temptation for me to exploit that and instrumentalize people to build my own kingdom, to feed my own ego, which is why I think that he was so adamant on writing against those impulses and focusing so much on love because love, and this, you know, this isn't a hippie answer or something. Love really is everything, right? Like love is what Christianity is all about. It's the love of God. And watch this. So here's what happens until we have faces. Psyche, Suke, the human soul, marries Eros, the god of love. Now the fox, remember the fox says, Ungit, she's your version of Aphrodite, only fiercer, okay? Aphrodite's son is Eros. Aphrodite in Rome is Venus. Venus' son is Cupid, okay? Psyche, the human soul, marries the god of love who himself is the son of the God of love, mm. which sounds like what I talk about every Sunday. Right, yeah. right, right, right. It's right. this profound modernist, almost an allegory, but an updating of the allegorical. And he's trying to show the gospel of how the gods are pressing upon us. He's, it's in one of his sonnets. He says, like a moth beating against the window pane for hours, thinking that the way to, to, to reach the flowers. It's the revelation that I had as kind of a, a former Baptist, a former, you know, I was nothing against my Baptist heritage, but I kind of came away from that mistakenly with this picture that it was our club and only, you know, we've all heard the jokes about, oh, we keep the Baptists in that room. Don't let, any, don't let right. them know anybody else's right. or the Presbyterians or whoever. I kind of thought it was God kind of keeping heaven from anyone. And that's where the doctrine of election, you know, gets misused, I think, so often. God, though, you see him in the great divorce. Turn my, my mind around. God is going to thrust heaven on anyone who will stand for it right? No one who seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. And God will go to whatever length, even the length of the, of the death on the cross in order yeah. to save anyone who will barely even begin to say yes. And you so that- You too shall be psyche. Yeah, yes, right. I, yeah. you are psyche too. 
Yeah. And, but she yeah. is also remember this wonderful thing. And I wanted to get back to your question about the father. So at the end, she has this vision and her father comes back and they're in the pillar room. And then he gives her a pickaxe and she digs down and three times she digs down. And finally, there's a vision she's having. Finally, she comes with her father to his mirror that she made a lot of. You got to pay attention to mirrors in Lewis. Mirrors mm -hmm. mean a huge mm -hmm. amount. Okay. And he holds her up by the scruff of the neck and he says, um, who are you? And she looks in the mirror and she wails in despair. And she says, I am Ungut. Because she thinks Ungut hates her. But that's hmm. self-deception. Ungut and her son have actually been reaching out to her, gave her a vision of the palace, gave her lots of people, gave her power, didn't curse her, all the rest. She wails and says, I'm Ungut. But Ungut means I am love. And look at what she does. Look at our self-deception. I say, I am love. And then I think that it's the worst thing in the world. Look at those three diggings. And those three diggings are the three diggings of Eustace out of his own skin. Hmm. And this is what Lewis always does. He takes a myth and flips it right side up. This flipping is very medieval. It's chiastic structure. It's flipping the up for the down, right? Yeah. It's screw tape is all this flipping. Eustace is so selfish, right? That he lies on a dragon's hoard right. and becomes a dragon from thinking dragonish thoughts. And then he wakes up, he drags himself to the pool and he looks in the pool and sees how ugly he is. He raises up and despairs. And like Paul Ford points out in the Companion to Narnia, he for the first time began to feel alone. Paul Ford has pointed out that the phrase for the first time is a spiritual sea change. Edmund for the first time began to think of somebody besides himself. That's when wow. he converts, right? For the first time he feels lonely, he despairs, and then he sees Aslan. He tries to dig himself out of his skin. How many times? Three times yeah. in the same way that there's this three digging down into the subconscious. And then Aslan says, you must let me undress you. Aslan digs him out of the skin. But watch what happens. Eustace, ugly because of his dragonish thoughts, looks into the pool, sees how ugly he is, and lives. Because he's the opposite of Narcissus. Hmm. Lewis is flipping the Narcissus myth. Narcissus looks into the pool, sees how beautiful he is, and dies. Edmund looks into that mirror I was talking mm. about and right. realizes that he is beloved. And what does he say to Eustace or, or to Edmund? He says, oh, Aslan, do you know him? And, and Edmund rightly says, well, he knows me. In the same way, Orwell sees that she is the image of love and begins to realize that the gods have been loving her all this time. And mm -hmm. she has just been selfishly, greedily, sinfully, pridefully, jealously shutting it out. And that's why I think this is, you know, really at the yeah. center of everything, Lucy. Yeah. I like the, the, the way you've summarized Lewis in terms of the, 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 the sort, of, sort of charity and clarity. Mm -hmm. One of the themes that I think is fascinating in this book, and it's really throughout Lewis' corpus, because he talks about this in so many ways all the time, is the, if I were to put it in philosophical language, is sort of the, the, uh, the epistemic, uh, the, the, epi the, 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 the relationship between charity and knowledge, that there's an epistemic thing, that there's something about epistemology, about what it is like to know and how we know reality, that has something to do with a soul uh, that is open 
has something to do with a soul that is actually not sort of incurved. I mean, that's the old medieval image is the, the soul incurved on itself, that narcissistic thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but somehow to be, uh, uh, to have your head raised up and to see outside of yourself, to not be obsessed with the self. Mm -hmm. um, this actually helps you know the things around you more. And so there's that great line when um, the psyche says, in fact, uh, it's when I, uh, it's, 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 it's when I, when I loved the most, I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this and you've got it. When I loved the most that I longed the most or something like right. that, right. that I, that, uh, go ahead. And that's a, that's a crucial point. I, I, you, know, you can, you can make a cottage industry about talking about Lewis and joy, right? And this yeah. German concept of Zenzucht and longing and absence and wanting. Um, and in doing my work on Tilia Faces, I don't think Lewis cares a fiddler's fig about joy. Joy, he says, at the very end of Surprise by Joy, what then of joy? I have to confess that although the stabs of joy has happened, has, have happened as often um, be, since my conversion as before it, it has hardly, even, hardly any more the importance that I once gave it because it served only as a signpost to something other and outer. Hmm. Other and outer. Remember, Lewis says we go out of ourselves to meet the other. Yeah. And so this is Lewis's coded language, meaning that joy only served as a signpost to love. And so all of this longing, if you think of the English word want, want means to lack. You know that old doggerel rhyme, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the, the horse was lost. For right. want of the, the horse, the rider was lost. For want of, yeah. Want, desire, means the presence of absence. To be keenly aware of, like he said at the end of the four loves, the, to practice the absence of God. And that signpost of joy pulled him out of himself towards love. But what was getting in his way, and I, I published this, Lewis's first autobiography. I just published it a few years ago in 2013. It's called Surprised by, or I'm sorry, Early Prose Joy. It was an account of his conversion to theism. And he wrote it in like 1930. He wrote it before he became a Christian. And he takes his, I mean, if you love philosophy, you've got to read this because he talks about his Barclayan idealism and he talks about Bergson. It's this much more deliberate philosophical journey than you ever see in Surprised by Joy. He rewrites it in Surprised by Joy, but uses that actual manuscript. And I've seen the actual notebook. Um, but the last religion that Lewis had was solipsism. Mm. Solo ipsis, right? Only I only the self. And so then when you think of him as going, I can't pray, I can't believe in God, because I'd have to posit that there was something out there besides myself. And as a materialist, all I can, all I can see is myself. So then when he says, you must picture me there in my rooms at Maudlin, night after night, the moment my mind lifted, even from a second from my work, sensing the unrelenting approach of him who I most earnestly desired not to meet. Yeah. And finally, what I greatly feared come upon, came upon me, and I'll correct his date. In Trinity term of 1930, I knelt, assumed a physical posture of selflessness, and prayed, meaning like, like Martin Buber said, I said vow, right? I knelt yeah. and prayed and admitted that God was God, yeah. right? And it's that moment of going out of self that he reproduces until we have faces. And that's the same move I have to reproduce every single day. Yeah. If I'm going to be a believer. No to me, yes to God. The holiest thing that we can say is thou, which is part of why I got my first tattoo this summer. 
it's, what does uh, it say? It's Hebrew. I took right. Hebrew last year. It's from my great grandmother was the only believing Jew in our family. And I took it from her prayer book. It's Hasdika. You know Chesed, right? Yeah. This is Chesedka. And Ka is, um, is, is the vocative of you. It means thy loving kindness. Yeah. Very the, good. The most sinful word I can say in the world is the first word of Tilia faces, I. Yeah. The holiest word I can say is thou. Mm. And to say thy loving kindness, I need that daily reminder that it is God's loving kindness and me maybe being a conduit of that in some small way. That is the whole yeah. mission of our lives as Christians. God, Amen, uh, brother. You know, yeah, you're God. God uh, I can't remember if it was Lewis that uses this metaphor, but that God doesn't leave us alone. Uh, yeah. And therefore Christians don't leave other people alone, <laughs> you know, because uh, we're like him. Yeah. Go ahead, Dale. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, um, you're, uh, brother, you are um, doing fantastic work, and I appreciate your passion, mm -hmm. and you see your pastoral heart, mm -hmm. and I think that's something that both, I know that both Joe and I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. uh, Joe and I have lots of long conversations um, when we're not on camera, and uh, we talk about a lot of the things that you're mentioning here, and, um, you know, I... I I can get disheartened with the way the world seems to be coming more and more brutal mm -hmm. and allergic to even the mention of the word love. Mm -hmm. You can almost see even pockets of professing Christians like screaming at you and mocking you for saying, Hey guys, we need to love one another more. It's like, it's not time for love anymore. My political interests yeah. are at stake. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, Oh, what are we doing? We've lost our way. And it's, um, it's, yeah. Uh, depressing on some level, but, um, but we're very, very appreciative for having, I, I want to wrap up by not asking you the standard question, because I know most people ask you where, if you were going to say, start with Lewis somewhere, uh, where would you start <laughs> with Lewis? And I've heard you answer that question before. And you're like, well, just pick something up. And if it doesn't spark your interest, put it away and find something else. Yeah. Read what you love. Lewis said he'd never read more than a page and a half of a book he didn't enjoy. Yes. Now he expanded his ability to enjoy, but if you start reading Lewis and you don't like that book, put it away. Yeah. And you, there's not nearly enough time, but, but keep at it until you find something that you do like, but that wasn't your question. Morgan. Right. So I, I want to say, I want to ask, uh, and then Joe, if you have a, a parting question, yeah. feel free, but what is a, a book that sort of um, would be, would touch on Lewis's themes by not a biography, but somebody that's saying similar things, it could be past or present, uh, that you would want to introduce people to that they might not be aware of uh, right now. Oh, wow. Uh, do you see the bookcase behind me? <laughs> that's a two-sider right there. Right, and, right, you know, right. and then I got the Lewis collectibles over here. Right. My wife's an author. And then I got the poetry down here. And yeah. Right. Um, oh my gosh. Um, so maybe I'll narrow it down and let's say yeah. um, theologically, wh who would be a good uh, theologian that touches on some of the themes explicitly that Lewis was sort of getting at in a Lewisian yeah. fashion? Well, or, or maybe just um, kind of... Uh, kind of standing next to standing next to Lewis or a neighbor of Lewis. Um, and I'm happy to talk about this guy because I found him from Michael Card, 
um, that marvelous musician. And I mm. actually met and went to church with Mike at Christ Community Church um, in Franklin, Tennessee. Mike was huge for me when I was at the Moody Bible Institute mm. years ago. Um, and his music still resonates so deeply. And he sent me a book list. And one of those authors that I got from Mike um, was Frederick Beekner. Um, mm. And uh, his novel, Godric, a novelization of like a 16th century English monk written almost entirely in iambic pentameter. It's in prose, but he writes it in iambic pentameter. Uh, Beekner touches a lot on some of these themes. Um, I got a reference, uh, the poet Mary Oliver, who just passed away um, a couple, about a year, year and a half ago. Uh, devastating loss to me. And, um, and uh, her book, let's see. Yeah, Devotions is a great compilation of some of her stuff. Uh, and then, but, oh man, there's just so many. How, how much time do we have? You got to <laughs> read, though, if you, ha if you don't know the work of Malcolm Guite, you have to read Malcolm Guite, G-U-I-T-E. Malcolm is a, a Cambridge, a former Cambridge professor, a poet, an Anglican priest, guy rides a Harley, um, which is what I want in a priest and a poet. Uh, he's single-handedly reviving the sonnet form. He's got a dozen books. He's got, uh, he just did a, a series of, of uh, quarantine quatrains. All of his stuff is available on his website. Um, and you can hear him reading it in that wonderful English accent. Uh, Malcolm's a good friend, but he's really sounding a lot of these themes and tying these things together. I hate this question because Sorry. I'm going to be thinking about 15 <laughs> authors as, <laughs> as soon as we finish. But, yeah. uh, but those are good starts. Very good. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Anything else, Joe? No, that's, that's uh, yeah, I think we got it. Yeah. Well, brother, thank you very much. And we will link to your website. And I'll, um, I'll also... Um, Joe, I'll shoot you a link to his uh, Facebook page where he's been reading through Till We Have Faces because uh, you do a very good job of reading. Oh, it's, thank you. Yeah, yes, it's, a, it's an yeah, yeah, it's inspirational. So. Well, I want to show you a little treasure before we go. Sure. Because um, yeah. I, I owe Phil Keggy more than one man can owe any, as much as one man can owe another because of his perfect placement of showing me generosity, showing me love, showing me real faith. Uh, and here's another incredibly talented, great person um, who also had time, has time for everybody. I, I worked with him for two and a half years. I was his road manager and watched him love people uh, over and over again. And his legacy of Lewis in my life was incredible. And so every time I go visit him, I always take a first edition Lewis book to thank him. And one day years ago, talk about jealousy and covetousness. Um, he said, well, hey, guy, I got something for you. And he pulls this off of his shelf. It's a British first edition of The Great Divorce. Mm. And he signs it to me. Now, I had coveted this book because I knew that when he got this book, um, his record company, Word Records, had a you're a heck of a guy uh, luncheon for him one day. And sure. that's when they gave him this book. Oh, very cool. Oh, wow. Oh, it's a signed, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, but the generosity of Phil to hold things so lightly in his hand and to think yeah. this book would bless you even more than it blessed me, or even if it doesn't, I feel the need to give it away. Um, mm -hmm. And that kind of, 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 of his model as a follower of Christ um, with these, all of these gifts that he just can't wait to give away. Man, I aspire to be like these men who have gone before me. Uh, me too. 
Yeah. Me too, brother. I think that's the goal of what Drew and I are trying to do. It's Absolutely. like, hey, yeah. go follow Jesus and love people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, but even more than that, I would say if there's anything to say, and I think the great need, and I think the root of the racial difficulties and the root of the political hatred, and we have given ourselves permission to hate, mm. right? We that's have right. violated the two great commandments. But I think that every human ill that I notice in my heart and that I see in, this, in, in the world around me comes from the improper grappling with the great love of God, yeah. the yeah. height and the depth and the breadth, and that nothing can separate us from that. And it's almost as if there's an enemy trying to separate us That's, from our central belovedness yeah. in, in, in Christ. And I think that if I could for one second of the day drink that draft down yeah. and live as if I am accepted in the beloved, like St. Paul says, I think that would be worth all the effort that we have. Yeah, and that's that's something Lewis I think gets at in in this book is mm -hmm. is that it's not that we love, it's not actually that we love people too much. It's that we love God too little. And I think it inflected in a in a more uh, 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 explicitly Christian direction. It's mm -hmm. that we we don't we're not wrapped in the love of God enough. We're too little. We're too little conscious of of divine love and of His. Uh, of his goodness toward us and the humility uh, and the joy that that ought to bring us. Absolutely. And I think the comments you made about just what's going on in our civilization, that's absolutely right. And it's healing. Uh, mm -hmm. It's healing when people see it, when people actually see somebody who they disagree with or who care, you know, political differences or whatever, but it actually has that, that, that heart of God for people, it's, um, it's, it's otherworldly in a yep. certain sort of way. And it is otherworldly. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And I think, uh, uh, Andrew, we're going to have you on Lord willing, maybe a couple more times to talk about to. a couple more books. Yeah, man. Uh, love to. So this is love an introduction to a lovely treat, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Um, and as always, you can find us over at the Davenant Institute, uh, org, uh, and check out the YouTube channel. You also find us at uh, Pilgrim Faith podcast facebook group and our facebook page share this far and wide we'll have plenty of li links for our brother uh, andrew lazo to um, get his work disseminated widely so gentlemen uh thank you so much for the time joe i love you brother love you too man hey and fellas we'll... let's let our gentleness be known to all amen, amen. yeah until next time see you later guys